falsetto that time. This is Open Mike Eagle. This is Secret Skin. This is another special uh, episode where I am what had happened wasn't myself. This episode, I'm discussing my 2017 album, Brick Body Kid Still Daydream. And uh, coincidentally, the title uh, and my decisions around it come up in the episode. Speaking of titling albums, I announced a new one last week. It's called Component System with the Auto Reverse, also affectionately known as a tape called Component System with the Auto Reverse. And I'm the only one that calls it the affectionate term because I'm one of the few people that has heard it. And I think you have to have, wait a minute, you have to have heard a thing before you can have affection for it. So after it comes out, I bet more people will call it a tape called the shoot. More people will call it a tape called component system with the auto reverse. So we announced that last week and by we, I mean mostly me. I was trying to think if there's anybody else. My manager, he announced it too. I say we a lot when I'm referring to my business because I'm a business man. But I am though. I have like three LLCs. I have uh, I have very confusing taxes. I you don't need to know that. But I have very very confusing taxes. We have a new single. We put music out when we announced the album. Uh, song called "I'll Fight You." I'll fight you. I'll fight you. Produced by the legendary Diamond D of Digging in the Crates crew. Uh, who was also the guest on the Dad Bod Rap Pod. I'm also joined by Nate LeBlanc on this episode of Secret Skin, and his home pod is the Dad Bod Rap Pod. You see that's a circle. You see there's alignment. You see we're all going in the same place, and that place is Stony Island. There's a song on the new album called 79th in Stony Island. I lived on that corner for a lot of years, and on a lot of years, uh, I was taping WHBK radio and would often hear songs by Diamond D who produced I'll Fight You. See, it's all a circle. Time is a flat, fat circle. I'm open Mike Eagle, this is Secret Skin. Next week, it'll be something else. <laughs> this week, this Brick Body Kid Still Daydream. What up, everybody? This is another unorthodox episode of Secret Skin, where I am what had happened was in myself, in collaboration with the, the good gentleman of Dad Pod, Rap Pod. We had David Ma on last time talking about dark comedy, and now we're joined by one of his fantastic co-hosts, Nate LeBlanc. How are you doing today, Nate? I'm well, Mike. Good to see you, as always. We've done a couple interview kind of things, but I'm happy to go deep on an album that I really enjoy and I think is among your best work. I'm just excited to dig into it. Awesome. Uh, before we get into it, just uh, throw us a quick plug for the Dad Bod Rap Pod. Absolutely. So Dad Bod Rap Pod is a, we like to think of it as a nuanced discussion podcast about hip hop, new and old. Um, it's hosted by myself, David Ma, one of the world's greatest hip-hop journalists, Damone Carter, a.k.a. Dem One, an MC, and we 
interview folks. We're really focused right now. Um, we're on a little run of interviewing all these Chicago artists. So this is fitting right into what we're doing. And we are, you know, somewhat, we're older cats. We're in our forties and we love hip hop from that was formative for us, but we're also really focused on what's great now. Um, we're listening to a lot of stuff on backwoods. We're listening to Fatboy Sharif. We're listening to Boldy James. And if you like old hip hop, but want to know what's going on with new hip hop, you should listen to dad bod rap pod. And I think that's a lot of people. So definitely check that show out. It's one of my favorites right here at the Stony Island Audio Network. But with that, um, I'm going to turn it over to Nate so we can dig into Brick Body Kids Still Daydream. Yeah, I have so many questions. So I hope I hope you do. <laughs> <laughs> that was the plan. I would love to begin by you setting the scene. Tell us who you were at this time, where you were in your career. What was leading up to the formation of the idea for Brick Body Kids? My clearest memory is being on an airplane and it occurring to me suddenly in the middle of this flight. I don't remember where I was flying from or to, but it occurred to me in that moment that I did not know what stood in the place of the Robert Taylor Holmes buildings. Like that just hit me like really hard. I was in college when they got demolished. So I remember seeing video footage of that. I remember, you know, that being in a lot of news articles. I can remember coming back to the city and really noticing they were gone, especially along like the Dan Ryan Freeway that runs like right down the middle of the South Side. Those buildings were very noticeable on that driver if you're taking a red line train down there and then being gone. I was like, wow. So I knew that they were gone, but like what I was thinking about was like in LA, for instance, you think about the 110 freeway, it's another freeway that, that runs right down the middle of uh, Metropolis. There's a lots of stories about all of the communities that were displaced in order for them to build that. So I knew those buildings got knocked down, but what did they put there instead? Like what was the development? What was it? And so then like, you know, paid a million dollars for the airplane Wi-Fi and started doing a little Googling and realized that there's nothing there. And this is a huge stretch of land in the middle of the South Side. And it's probably very expensive land, but largely there's nothing. Like specifically in the building where my auntie and my cousins and my great grandmother lived, like there's nothing there. And like that incensed me. I just heard a million souls howling when I realized that there's nothing there. And so I think I had already written a couple of these songs by that point, but it was at that point where I was like, okay, whatever it takes to like build a mythology around this place, like I'm going to do that. I'm going to pretend that like these buildings were the Egyptian pyramids and that some sacred thing was knocked down and I'm going to write the stories about what happened there. Like the the myths, the the tall tales, like that became my aim to kind of make like an audio mural of what life was like because there were like 30,000 real people that lived in their buildings. Yeah, I'm shocked to hear that nothing stands there, that the land wasn't repurposed immediately to house some of the people or to just to, to do something productive with it. That's actually really shocking. Um, I'm reminded of the situation I think you were lightly referring to where in L.A. they cleared the neighborhoods of Chavez Ravine to make way for Dodger Stadium and say what you will about this brutal act of gentrification, but at least people go there and 
can see a baseball game or whatever. And um, I don't know if you know it, but there's a Ry Cooter album that examines that time and does it's I'm, now that I'm thinking about it, it's actually a sim it has a lot of thematic resonances with your album where he he tells the stories of the neighborhoods pre Dodger Stadium. Yeah, I'm not familiar with it, but I'd, I'll definitely check it out on that recommendation. Mr. Yard, a small man, as anyone can plainly see. I guess what I want to drill into now, because it will affect the rest of the questioning, is, is this a concept album? I think so. In some sense, all of my albums are concept albums, because they're all statement albums. They're all, like, each one of them is a sentence that has an aim, that has a, a goal, that has something I'm trying to get across. And I think this one is probably more solidly a concept album because it's, you know, thematically very tied to that idea of the mythology of the Robert Taylor Holmes. Like, I think closer than most of my albums, this is probably the one with the clearest sense of aesthetic purpose. Well said. It was an album I was already familiar with as a fan of yours, but it can be seen both ways except for the last track. That's 100% about one thing. They blew up my auntie's building, put out a great-grandchildren. Who else in America deserves to have that feeling? But there are ways to parse it otherwise, where it could just be about your childhood. I think perhaps people come in with some preconceived notions upon seeing the cover, where like you're embodying the building in a way that's um, a little bit more literal than I think the actual writing of the album is. And when you're writing a concept album, how close do you feel like you need to stick to the concept? Are you doing a referendum with every line or are you just kind of hoping it fits? I feel no obligations whatsoever. I feel complete freedom to explore the concept in any way that makes sense to me, even if I don't feel like it'll make sense to to the listeners. Like, there's a song on here that doesn't make sense to people at all the why it's on this album. And I had a lot of back and forth in myself on whether or not that song was going to make it on the album. But the album operates on a few different levels. And you're right, one of them is my childhood. One of the ways I explore this theme is how me growing up in this area informed the person who I am. And with that, there's a couple of points on the album which are just explorations of me. But I do think that it's in the context of developing in this place. This is something I've just been wanting to ask you for a while. And since I have the opportunity, I'm going to ask you, you describe a, a Southside Chicago upbringing here. You're talking about the Robert Taylor Homes. Personally, as a person who's not from Chicago, I think when people think Chicago Housing Project, they think of Cabrini Green. And Cabrini Green is still used in kind of urbanist circles as a demonstration of what went wrong with tower-style urban developments. I don't know the names of the ones in The Wire, but The Wire famously starts one of their seasons with the towers coming down and the crew needing to find somewhere else to be, right? So it's, it's in pop culture. Robert Taylor Holmes were, for me, not something that I was personally familiar with, but I can, I can think of the, the same ideas in that place. And so there's this whole thing with Chicago, kind of like a, the world described by like Dennehy and Kenny Dennis, like a mustachy, bratwursty Chicago. Favorite actor, Dennehy. Favorite drink, old dolls, bears, hawks, socks, bulls. Say goodbye a little longer like I ate a piece of big red. Grow a mustache the size of Mike Dicker's forehead. Hair combed to the side, looking like a... And so what I want to ask you is, do you identify with that kind of Chicago iconography? I mean, I definitely do but not in as much of a hands-on way the the unfortunate stereotype of a lot of people on the south side is that they never go north of downtown and so for i think a lot of my 
upbringing. That was my reality too. Ultimately, I started going to uh, an elementary school on the north side. So I got bused from the south side to the north side. And I mean, it it literally feels like two worlds. I mean, that nothing emphasizes the segregation of Chicago like, you know, like that iconography does. So I was exposed to that, but it was like a different world. So I do identify with it, but I kind of more more of a of a of a visitor than it being my my hometown. Very well said. Thank you for helping me understand that. And I hadn't really thought about the term segregation in the in those in what I'm talking about, but it makes sense that there are literal divides in terms of freeways and things, and then there are just huge cultural divides, and that's what it feels like. It might be one of the most segregated places I've ever been. You know, just growing up in that, you, there there are entire swaths of that city that are very easily identifiable for some people that you never experienced. Right. Like, I don't feel that you have a Chicago accent. Did you have one at some point and work your way out of it? I have a Chicago accent like Kanye has a Chicago accent. Like, I grew up saying ka, like getting a ka. I didn't start pronouncing that R until I moved to California and realized kind of how crazy that sounded. There's a Southside accent that is like a combination of R grandparents and great grandparents who came from the south like it's very like there's a southernness to it but then it kind of meets that kind of accent you're referring to the north side one like if you listen to people from the south side you'll you'll hear it i love the way that the rapper casual talks and uh we interviewed him a couple of months ago and his oakland accent is so thick it makes him sound like a li- he's from the south a little bit he was not a fan of that theory uh, <laughs> <laughs> he was like no i'm just that oakland dude and i'm like okay i grew up 40 minutes from oakland and i've talked to a lot of people from there but you know how you sound that's hilarious so this album is on mellow music group were they involved heavily in making some of these decisions are you driving the train here like how did the project begin to coalesce no matter what position in I'm in and what label I'm working with, my experience has been that I'm always driving the train. I love the freedom of it, but you know, there's a lot of living and dying by my own decisions. I think this is a situation where I made a bunch of good ones. <laughs> but PR-wise, we went a very different route for this album, if I remember correctly. A lot of that decision was was Mellow wanting to try something new, which I was down with. I think everything else was was stuff that I decided. Could you take that one step further? What different type of methodology with the marketing? Um, I think it was literally just like a different firm that we had never used. Oh, okay. I think it was a more expensive firm as well. Gotcha. Um, Love to get into some of the tracks here. But before we do that, let's talk a little bit about the title. Did the title come to you in the middle of the night and you scribbled it down on a notepad or was it very methodical? Like, did you arrive at it first? What I remember most about this title is having a note on my computer open that just had all of these different iterations of this thing I was trying to say. And ultimately, I settled on Brick Body Kid Still Daydream as an inca- like the best way I could say it at the time. But it wasn't like I was like, that's the one. I was just kind of like tinkering and tinkering and tinkering and tinkering and tinkering. And I'm like, chewed on that one. I'm like, okay, this will work. It was actually a long process. So the opening track is Legendary Iron Hood, produced by Exile, an amazing hip-hop producer known for working with Blue and his solo kind of thematic albums of his own. And I thought I knew what this song was about. I had listened to it multiple times and kind of came in with a thing. And basically what I thought is that this was a more autobiographical song and that you had a brother, Charles, who was caught up in gang stuff and you're more the like quiet reading kid at home. 
And then a member of your Patreon uh, sent in some possible questions for us to use on this. They posited that this was actually possibly written from the perspective of the Juggernaut and his brother Charles, Charles Xavier. What had happened with this track, dude? What is going on? <laughs> Black Tom got style, African Porsche. Got a brother named Charles. If we on that bullshit, I protect my neck with some magical jewels. It can't none of y'all take them from me. Yeah. Again, I mean, this this is a song that operates on a couple of levels. So I talked about mythologizing earlier. And this is the origin story of a character called Legendary Iron Hood that was developed in the projects. But it is certainly attempting to, like, put a spin on the Juggernaut story. It is certainly that. Like, it's almost like, and this, this is what makes it really, really real it, to me, is that I was a kid in the hood reading comics and and I was a kid in the hood that would daydream and there was shit that I went through in terms of trying to like you know walk to school and the sort of danger that I had to navigate in that pursuit and a fantasy like being able to put my head down and just walk through things and not experience any pain or danger that's the sort of thing I would fantasize about and so I just took that one step further and literally like I don't know what the word is but I just repurposed the Juggernaut story for my own purposes, akin to the kind of shit I used to do in my mind as a child. Okay, so everyone's right. Everybody's right. It's nice when it ends up that way. Excellent tone setter for the album. We begin to enter the project, right? The, the Robert Taylor Holmes. We understand that our narrator is feeling perhaps a little bit out of place there, but has an intense connection to the place. Mm -hmm. The next track is How Could Anybody Feel at Home, produced by DJ Nobody. Everybody's secrets inspire all of my scenes. I write in all of my fantasies and I die in all of my dreams. My superpowers I maintain, I take control of my scene. Y'all see what I can't say, I can't say all in the scene. I done told some goofy shit that sounded like a poem. I spun around in circles on the globe. So who the hell could ever feel at home? This is my favorite song of yours. I had this intense connection to it when I saw you perform it in San Francisco on your last tour. It was right after COVID, and those shows were so weird. And I, we saw you back-to-back -back nights. I saw you in San Francisco, and then the next night in Boise. And the way that you performed it, we talked about this a little bit in our interview at the time, the way you kind of remixed things on the fly, and the, the passion with which you did the oration on this song uh, just really spoke to me. And I was like, man, I like I had not given that song enough credit. That song is actually really deep and I need to investigate it more. So that's what I've done since then. And so do you consider what you're doing on that track to be melodic rapping or singing or does it matter? I listened to this album today to set the table to come talk about it. And um, one thing that really struck me like, this might be the album with the songs that I've, like, performed consistently the most. And they start to take on such a different life after I kind of learn how to perform them. And so, like, live in 2022, I'm, like, singing the shit out of this song on stage now. Like, I'm really singing it now. Like, um, in a way that I don't know that I was writing it like that. This song actually was made before the album. Like I made this song uh, with DJ Nobody for one of his projects, but it ended up fitting so well sonically and thematically, I asked him if he could let me put it on here too. 
I bring that up to say, like, most of these songs I was able to really iterate on a lot, you know, be in the studio, laying them again and again and again. Because this was for his project, like, I remember I wrote it on a plane and I landed and went and recorded it the next day, like, we had one session. And I say that to say, like, I think that the recorded version was on the way somewhere. I didn't even really know where it was going until like now, or or I would say like in the last couple of years, like, oh, now I understand what this, what what I was, um, where I was aiming. And so I think the recorded version, I'd say like that is rapping in key for the most part, not necessarily singing. And even in the chorus, it's very like subdued, the the singing, because I'm, I'm basically just trying to get through it almost because, you know, another thing I've realized in the course of my career is that many times I try to do shit I don't know how to do. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I wasn't able to really sing the song yet. So there's kind of a muted delivery on the recorded version. It's tough to call an indie rap song a hit, perhaps by the uh, Billboard definition or something, but this really does feel like one of your hits. And I feel like I'm not the only person who connects with it in a personal way. A really interesting note about this song is that, like, I think this song has inched its way into being the close number two of, like, all-time most played tracks, like, on Spotify. It did appear to be so this afternoon when I looked. It's on the way to maybe overtaking um, Ziggy Starfish as the first, as the, the most played song. And the really interesting thing about that is that it wasn't a single, you know? Like, so it wasn't like any extra promotion went into this song. It's just, like, a song people heard and they like. Yeah, we're going to get to the single in a little bit, and it's it, it, they do have some resonance with each other. They have some similarities. But for now, I'll just say, um, I think that anyone who's ever tried to write anything has the that will key into something you say in the chorus, which is that I write in all my fantasies and I die in all of my dreams. I'm just like, yeah, sounds familiar. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I'm sorry. I'm sorry it does. I'm sorry it does. The next track up that I wanted to discuss is Hymnal, featuring Samus and produced by Andrew Broder. To the known self be felt tip, hip is a belt clip with a helmet fit for helpless feels. If you can help it, reassess the unarmed, leave refreshing unharmed, bring milk and honey to the funny farm, see the rest become charmed, done. An apple a day with apples and the say. There was a uh, pretty intense interest in this from your Patreon community, and especially in terms of Samus. I'd rather be hiding alone like some Ewoks up in treetops, creeping around like I'm T-Boss, steeping the grounds in my teapots, but I'm Steve Jobs on my Apple, updating my e-shops, eat an apple a day, take a brief pause, take a nap, lie awake in between sobs, then I rap and I pray and the grief stops. My ego takes cheap shots. Can you describe who Samus is and why you wanted to bring her into this track and anything you can kind of tell us about the birth of this one? Uh, she's probably the most talented, raw, just brilliant MC. Like, if you just take this song, for instance, right? Samus's verse is fucking amazing. But you really got to see her live. Like, that's when you kind of realize how fucking awesome she is. Um, everything she writes has her complete emotional self in it. Like, it's all there. And she'll, you know, when, when she does her show, she talks about, you know, basically what each song means and then she'll do it and like she'll bring you to tears. She's got a doctorate degree. Um, she teaches at a university. I forget which one. She's just brilliant, like in 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 every way. Just an amazing, amazing person um, who happens to be an amazing rapper who I think more people should know. But, you know, that's that's part of this this indie thing is that people operate in the shadows. <laughs> 
Yeah. I've worked with her a couple times and and I love working with her and probably always will because, you know, she's the sort of person that if if ever I have the opportunity to help shine a spotlight on somebody, it would be her. Trying to pin classics like Reeboks or Greek Thoughts or a Fleet Fox and teach a good message like Aesop's that stick to my skin just like Reese Spots to forget all the things that my dreams cost. Yeah, I'm getting my kicks, fucks, and clean socks. Ice cold, we living like freeze pops because I'm going to take licks while I defrost. Divest from your demons and beat stocks and invest in your team till your scene hops and my mean wearing jeans to the scene. Yeah, that's awesome. I definitely need to go and do some more exploratory listening in her catalog, but it's an impressive guest verse, and uh, I guess something I've been thinking about a lot in terms of uh, we get sent a lot of music, and I try to listen to some of it. It's impossible to keep up with everything, but I try to be open minded. And sometimes I'm I get stuff send stuff that I love, and I never would have found any other way than the person doing that brave thing of sending a cold email to someone and hoping for a response. Right. So that said, a lot of what we get. It just doesn't connect in any way. And a lot of the mid-tier indie rappers don't do guest verses in a thoughtful way. Like, they just throw people on tracks a lot. And I almost feel like there should be some sort of introduction or, like, a reasoning of why the person is on there rather than they owed you a verse from their thing or you know the same producer. And I bring it up at this point in the interview to say that there aren't many guests on this. It's just uh, Samus and Haslow uh, vocally, I believe, and that it seems that they were chosen for very specific reasons. Do you have any thoughts around that? Like, do you feel like you need to bring these people into your world and introduce them to your audience in any way, maybe in the press materials or something? Or do you just let the verses speak for themselves and the cosign of you having them hold that weight. You know, it's always funny um, because at any particular moment in indie rap, like, you know, I could be in a position to feature someone and I might have fans that could check them out or it could be the opposite. Like, like they could start bubbling and then suddenly I'm being brought into their world. In that sense, it's really difficult for me to think about it that way. I typically think about it really in terms of the creative. And I can't, like, I guess I can't assume the person listening to the song hadn't heard of Samus. Even though, like, I can look back now and see that that probably was the case when we were making it. I didn't know that. Like, I think she was courting some pretty big opportunities at that time that didn't necessarily pan out. But if this whole thing could have been flipped. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, I could be interviewing her about your guest verse and who's this guy? 100%. 100%. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult for me to think about it that way, which is interesting in, in terms of the music I'm making now. I'm definitely doing a lot more rapping with other people now and and with little concern about who knows who or whatever just wanting to make music with more voices now yeah right on you have tended in the this album cycle that we're talking about in this little what had happened was style miniseries to rap over electronic based production like some synth stuff etc and i guess something i've always wanted to ask you and i'm going to take this opportunity to do so like do you ever just want to like throw on funky drummer and just like fucking rap as hard as you can? Like, do you ever want to like style in that way? For the most part, no. I've been rapping for a long time. In that time, I've heard a lot of rap music. And so there's a style of rap 
speak that's just not super interesting to me anymore because I've heard it a million times. Even though like I still think it's good and I still think like sometimes it's dope when I hear other people do it. I think like for me, and I was talking with talking a little bit about this with with, with David. We were talking about dark comedy because around that time, and this is coinciding with the LA beat scene kind of blowing up this, that's combining all these, you know, electronic elements with hard beats and a lot of synths and stuff. I felt like sampling just got too risky right around then. Like it felt like such a bad idea to rap over obvious samples that like it became a prohibitive feeling. It just became like a bad idea. Like, like why would I put my creative heart into this piece of work that I'm going to be afraid of the wrong person hearing because I'm not going to be able to pay for it. And that kind of pushed me further into the LA sound as that LA sound was was developing and, and a lot of people who were around me were engaged in that. I'm definitely more attuned to a certain feel that came from older beats, but I'm, I'm trying to do it without hint, hint. They, they use the, the same, same old samples. samples. That's a black sheep line. <laughs> so the next track that I wanted to talk about is No Selling. This one is produced by Kenny Siegel, another huge favorite of ours and someone whose beats have a ton of texture. Gotta keep it facade, I gotta play it cool. Like with you with a girl and she can wake at school. Gonna get the lefty shirt, my stomach never hurt. Strong face, strong jaw shown to my competitors. I tell my AC Allen wouldn't even limp. My note here, and I'll just read it to you and see what you think about it. This song is undercutting the machismo that is inherent in rap. Sure. Part of the project of Open Mic Eagle seemingly is like, uh, you're you're a real person, you have emotions, you present your full self, or maybe not full, but as much as you want the audience to see, and we'll come back to that a little bit. Uh, but it, is it important to you to not perpetuate a kind of stereotypical brashness? I think it's important. I also think it's just like natural to who I am. Like, I don't want to reinforce any cliche, like, you know, rap or otherwise. Like, that's just not interesting to me. Part of my intention with this song, it's not quite to subvert the machismo, but it is to kind of own it in my own way because there's a thing that I wanted to point at. Like, oh, coming from these sorts of areas, it kind of kills you in a way. Like, not feeling free to be vulnerable is a lifestyle all its own. And in that, like, yeah, like there's an extreme version of it where you just, you're an asshole. Right. And, you you know, you just don't care about anything. But then there's this muted version of it where it's like, I feel terrible inside, but nobody knows it because I'm no selling everything that's happening to me. I wanted to point at the thing that's underneath that. And, and that's why that's what made the song interesting to me, even though like I, I do. <laughs> I do think not a lot of people get that. It's always the risk, right? You know, you know, you can't you can't decide whether they are or not. And the the wrestling aspect of it, it just again, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, it's basically like if you're no selling, you're not helping your partner land their side of the exchange, right? Well, I, I, I think I want to make it a little more specific than that. So the whole thing about wrestling is that the drama is built by pain, basically. If we and you are having a match and you throw a punch, I have to sell the punch or else there's no drama in the match, right? So if you're no selling, I'm not registering the fact that you punched me and it makes this whole thing look weird. The level of it being the indication of pain is already making this make way more sense to me. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Legs tight, cause I've been running things. That shit is exhausting. I'm in a ton of pain. But I'm no settling. I'm no settling. 
Okay, here's another one I've been wanting to talk to you about for a long time. The track is Happy Wasteland Day, again produced by Exile. And something that I really, really like and appreciate about your rapping style is that at times you will show the effort. You're not just trying to get cleanly through the verse, that your voice will crack a little, that you're, you will ramp up and ramp down, that there's, there's emotional resonance in the volume and the exertion level on your voice that I think is really missing in a ton of the indie rap that we listen to. People just seem to be wanting to be so technically proficient that they tend to sound a little robotic. And you do not do that. And you especially don't do that on this track. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. When the Kenya's that garbage person, I might want to lay down and die. Power down on my darkest urges, keep my personal crown up high. I'm the king of my lonely island, home is high, they can't reach my house. I put out all the garbage, fire, squeeze the side of right in my mouth. Everything is not ordinary. Things begin One thing I've noticed in indie rap, especially being around people like at, at the Blow, Project Blow, like they're so good at rapping that it almost, it hurts them. Like, I've seen, you know, No Can Do, All City Jimmy, he used to host Low In Theory. And I mean, of course, he, he does a million things, but he used to host Low In Theory. And when he hosted Low In Theory, he used to freestyle over a lot of the producers. Uh, you know, some of the producers would have him while he was hosting, have him freestyling. But he's so good at freestyling. Like, I would watch him be destroying a freestyle for like four minutes. And I can tell because there's no mistakes, people don't know it's freestyle. Right. And there are these insane beatscapes with tons of different things to rhythmically respond to, right? Right. And he's in all of them, hitting every rhythmic nuance, destroying with punchlines, but it's all so perfect that people have no idea they're watching magic happen. And so, like, I definitely am intentional about, like, showing the effort. Like you said, I think it's a good way to put it. Like, I think there's some shit in the imperfections that, that is important to show. The next one I wanted to talk a little bit about is uh, Brick Body Complex, produced by Caleb Stone. And first, let me ask, who is Caleb Stone? Caleb Stone was a guy who came up in the L.A. indie scene. He was in bands for a long time. And he started making beats, and he got really fucking good at it. And I think he lives in Detroit now. He's just an awesome, slept-on producer, man. He's great. Don't call me naked, a rapper, my motherfucking name is Michael Eagle, I'm sovereign, I'm from a line of ghetto superheroes, I holler, I got something to bring to your attention, 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 I promise you I will never fit in your descriptions, I'm dying, don't let nobody tell you nothing different, they lying, a giant in my body is a building, a building, a building, a building. This song has a great chorus and kind of a, a personal thesis statement about you. Can you break down how that came to be, what you said, and like what it means to the vision of this project? There's this really funny thing I heard a long time ago about all rappers having to have a song where they say their name. I used to poo-poo that, but then like when I was writing this album, I was like, yeah, it's just like standing on something. It's putting all of your chips on yourself in a way. I'm thinking like, I'm trying to represent these buildings like, I gotta be big like that. You know, thought about the people who lived in, in those buildings. I mean, of course, not all of them, but like people were put in a position gang, socially, whatever, like they had to stand on shit. They had to really stand on shit. Like they had to really like rep 
something. And like, I don't know, it was something about this beat and what I was writing about and wanting to say my name and wanting to like, you know, just a real self-definition kind of song, but through the lens of like what this area made me. I think it's just like one of those things where you just figure out a way to tell people how to treat you. And that ended up being what the song became. And and I don't know if, you know, this was, I, I iterated on this song a lot. And I think I was mostly iterating on the hook, trying to figure out how to make it say all the things that I wanted it to say. It's interesting hearing you break down the the initial track and how there are superhero themes and references baked into the album and then you personalizing that a little bit more here that you're from a long line of ghetto superheroes i think is 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 really interesting and do you believe in the concept rap song thesis statement like would you use a term like that and say like this is the song that defines what i'm trying to get at with the rest of the songs um i think so but in my case it's usually not one song that does that in most cases i'm not like a title track guy like it's like three different ways i want to say the thing you know, in this album in particular, there's like three or four songs that are like, okay, this one's a thesis statement. No, that one's a thesis statement. No, that one, you know, <laughs> all of them are a thesis statement, you know? I have to take us briefly into the song Wedding Ghost. So don't invite me to your wedding. You didn't invite me to your funeral. So I'm not gonna be on time. You didn't invite me to your funeral. I listen to all of your podcasts and stuff and uh i love you as a presenter and i think you're such a good interviewer but you've said something a couple of times in recent things that i've listened to where you you have felt that you are perhaps too relatable or accessible is actually the term that i want to use what i want to say to you is if you don't want to be so accessible and relatable you gotta stop writing songs like this like this is just such a like oh my God, I feel this so hard. Like, it's just <laughs> the not being invited to the wedding, not being invited to the funeral, the the disillusion of a relationship. Like, who hasn't been there? It's just like, it's so real. It's so human. It's just like, I think anyone who would hear this song would like put you at the top of the need to have a beer with list, like immediately. You know what I mean? That's interesting. I, I, I feel like a lot of people don't like this song, but I think it's because they don't, un- this is the one I was saying, I don't think people understand how this fits into the narrative of the album. I'm glad it came back organically. Let's let's talk about that a little bit. Who's coming up to you and telling you this? Uh, that they don't like this song? Oh man, I think I think Anthony Fantano doesn't like this song. I think he made a point to say that in his <laughs> review. Like, you know, but there, but you know, I've 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 been on enough um, you know, Rachel Musics and you know, all these poking around places I'm not supposed to be to see that this was a song that people felt like it didn't fit. And I and I get that. Like I I I seriously I had a conversation with myself about whether or not to put this on here because I I do understand that the connection isn't clear. But to me, like, I actually don't want to go to anybody's wedding. And it's because, like, weddings, like, the nature of a wedding is that it's a very emotionally available event. And I don't like that. Like, I'm not emotionally available. And I don't like to be in situations where that's expected from people or from me. Like, I just don't like that. And I think that truth in myself is related to the no selling it's related to growing up in these neighborhoods where you don't want to be vulnerable it's just like i'm not really good at feeling my feelings i don't necessarily enjoy watching other people feel their feelings (laughs) and i don't you know and i don't like being in a situation where i might be forced to feel mine well said i understand that now though 
you're very good at writing about them. So I'm going to be thinking about this for weeks. Let me present a counterpoint. And uh, I just came up with this, so it's not super thought out. Have you ever seen the movie The Tree of Life? No. Who who made that movie? Terrence Malick. Okay, uh, right, very, right. Very divisive film. It uh, uh, is a saga of a multi-generational family that also contains this breathtaking sequence in the middle of it where you literally see life start from the Big Bang and continue through the dinosaurs up until you have a modern Texas family, right? That sounds awesome. It's an incredible movie. You should definitely watch it and whatever mood enhancers you do these days, <laughs> you should do them. Um, but it was very controversial because it stars Brad Pitt and Jessica Chastain and all these other kind of mainstream movie people. Tons of people walked out. And in my showing, tons of people were like talking back to the screen like, what the fuck is going on? Why is there a dinosaur on the screen? It's a, it, an art film that was marketed as a blockbuster. And there is a section of it where Sean Penn plays the grizzled person who the little child, the angelic child in the movie became. It's not a spoiler. There's nearly no spoiler. There's really no plot. <laughs> so I say all that to say this. I think this song does fit the narrative of the album because the kid who grew up in Robert Taylor grows up moves to L.A., becomes a poet, becomes a rapper, becomes a person who doesn't want to go to weddings, and that's how life works. So, yep, 100%. You know, not to disagree with you and the esteemed Mr. Fantano. No, 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 no. I'm saying I agree with you because that's why I put it on the album. But but I, I you know, I, I knew that it would not be something that a lot of people would grasp. I think it comes off as silly to some people. I approach the delivery with a lot of whimsy and, and you know, that in itself is a choice um, that can that can bite you in the ass with, with indie rap fans sometimes. We're rounding the corner here. We are going to talk about 95 Radios, produced by and featuring Haslow. I want to hear who Haslow is in this universe, and I would also love it if you would tell us a little bit about Jordan Katz, who plays a pretty heavy role in some of these tracks. So can we start there and then we'll talk a little bit more about it? So Jordan Katz is, uh, is is just an amazing musician. If you ever see my Tiny Desk performance, he arranged that whole band. So uh, he was responsible for breaking the songs down and reconstructing them with live musicians. I want to say starting with this album, uh, he's he's contributed something to everything I've put out. He's really amazing at a bunch of instruments and really loves hip hop. So it's always just a joy to work with him. Haslow is a rapper from Philly. You know, I met him when I met like the Wrecking Crew and all those guys. And uh, he was putting out albums on Mellow uh, a while ago too. When I got signed, he had put out this album called In Case You Don't Make It, right before that, I think. And that album is absolutely brilliant. To whom it may concern, I'm the kid who you never listen to in your class. Sitting in back, I write, I have tried. In the course of having an indie rap career where, you know, you go to a lot of South by Southwest and you go on tour and you, you go places and you see people and you meet people, like, uh, me and him met and kind of clicked and, like, became real cool and, um... We ended up making a few songs together. And this was a beat he made. And I think like he he shot me this beat, I want to say in like 2015. And I had did that hook. And we were kind of just sitting on this song, kind of not knowing what to do with it, because all we had was the beat and the hook. And then I was putting this album together. I'm like, oh, this is this is perfect. So then we put our verses on it and ended up using it here. And we drove all through the neighborhood, sitting in a car all day, trying to find a radio. 
looking at the window frame Trying to find a radio All up in my grandma's basement In the course of researching for this, I found out that um, I'm nine days older than you. We are the last people on Earth who will have had an analog childhood and a digital adulthood. We're very lucky, I think, to be in this situation where we understand both. It's very weird. It's weird as hell. Like, we can't relate to either generation on either side of us in any real way. And we watched it all change, yeah. Yes. The line in particular that uh, really stuck with me, it's just a beautiful melody. It has this nice loping beat. But the thing about putting the foil on your hands to try to get the signal, like, I'm old enough or young enough, depending on how you look at it, to remember having a TV with rabbit ears and finding a signal. It's just such a great song. And before we move on to the video, which I definitely want to talk about, I'm wondering, and I'm always wondering, how much of a conversation do you have to have with Hoslow to be like, this is the theme? Can you write something like this? Or was he just so involved in the creation of the song, as you just noted, that that wasn't something that needed to be verbally expressed? Or You know, I'm really proud of this hook. And I think that, like I said, we we had had to beat and had to hook forever. And I think ultimately that was going to inform, you know, how we wrote, you know, this this quest for a radio, this, you know, this this, this kind of like exploration of what it meant to like try to find the music that we loved in the past, you know. So I just think, yeah, that was going to inform our writing anyway. So we didn't have to like really get super detailed about what each other what each other was going to write about unsurprisingly the most eloquent person i've ever talked to about this was dj shadow in our premiere episode for stony island we interviewed him and he's such a great question answerer and he gave us a really detailed breakdown i mean he's from our hometown san jose so we have that weird connection with him but he moved to davis a very small town in california where sacramento is the closest major metropolis and he would he would search for signals because he it's the same thing as the song he had heard they had played a hip-hop song, probably like Herbie Hancock Rocket or something that wouldn't technically be in the hip-hop section of the radio record store, but it had the thing he was looking for, the breakbeats, the scratching, something like that. A Houdini, a Fat Boys, a Curtis Blow. They had heard this radio station played it once, so then they'd sit there for days to, to trying to find it. It's so beautiful. It's uh, the inaccessibility is what made things special. And um, yeah, I, I have to say, this is one of your best songs, and I was very pleased to find out that it has a video. How did this video come together? Who's in it? What's it all about? There was some drama. You know, we basically just kind of wanted to set this scene of of being in this neighborhood with this with these real people. We were going to shoot in this one neighborhood in LA. We got permits from the city and everything. And uh, the production crew went the night before to try to like set up some shots. And we were told by some local street cats that we were we would not be shooting a video <laughs> in that neighborhood. That thing we thought we were going to be doing, no, we we wouldn't be doing that after all. And it, it was funny because one of my producers was like, "But we have permits." No, nah, they don't make they don't make them kind of permits. So uh, we ended up having to find this other neighborhood on really short notice and get everything that way. And they pulled it off. And it, I just this is one of my favorite videos that we've. Than we've ever done yeah it's it's great and it's so la and uh your son is in it briefly and it's just it's just a really lovely video and you use the framing device of a fake newscast which i feel like you know you're 
you you look and can do a voice that is very newscastery. Like if you you know life had taken a different turn, I could definitely see you having done that. So uh, it's a good framing device. It's uh, it's also kind of for a bit of a wistful melancholy song. It it always has that comedic element that you bring to a lot of your stuff. It's like to me, like you're a straight man. You know, like you're not sitting here cracking jokes, but you're setting people up perfectly. You have the deadpan, and so yeah, I feel like you did that for yourself. I did. That's funny. I, that's exactly what it was. That's exactly what it was. We have to talk about your auntie's building. This song is incredible. The producer is Toylight. I would love to know who that is before we get into kind of the guts of it. So uh, he's a L.A.-based musician and beat maker and singer. Uh, he produced Dark Comedy Morning Show and Big Pretty Bridges off of Dark Comedy. And this... I mean, you know, I, I went over to his place to to get beats to make new stuff on, and I was expecting that he would have more pretty stuff like that that we had done before. And then he played this beat, and I'm like, oh, this is it exactly. Because I and, and I didn't know I'd be getting this from him, but I knew I wanted to make a song that sounded like the building being torn down. Like I knew, like I I had that in my mind. Like I I need that. Like that feeling, that actual occurrence has to be explored emotionally on this album and when he played that beat i was like this is it this is perfect did he have that part at the end that i think uh, rolling stone referred to as the coda where it actually is kind of like sound designed to sound like rubble I think so. I think that That's was crazy. Anyway. Yeah. That must I have been insane to hear that. Like Oh, it was it was perfect. It was just like it was like perfect. It was like, yes, this. I thought it was important. And because I thought it was important and because I'm not good at feeling my feelings, it was actually difficult to do. It was important to explore my feelings around this erasure that was the the you know, the impetus for this whole project. Like the the flight I was talking about where this whole idea occurred to me, I think the Wi-Fi was good enough for me to watch this YouTube video where they actually show the building being torn down. You know, I don't know which building it was, so I don't know if it was actually her building, but like that's what was in my mind. And and I and the this feeling that I had watching that and just knowing that there's nothing there, like um just like the anger at that. You know, like at the whole story of the Robert Taylor homes, like these new modern buildings that were supposed to be the answer to all of the the housing inequality and the slums that people were living in. And these were supposed to be the end. And people were so excited to move in and they quickly fell into disrepair. And then, you know, I think because Chicago was trying to get an Olympic bid at some point, like they just decided that it was all a mistake. They moved a bunch of people out. They lost a lot of people. Like they literally like can't account for like ten thousand people who used to live in these buildings. And they just, you know, they 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 just knocked them down. Like, you know, this is like 50 years of history at that point. You know, a couple of generations of people, these closed ecosystems that had all of this very specific culture. And it wasn't celebrated at all. And I know that there's not a lot to be celebrated about 
a lot of the living conditions, but these were people. These were generations. These were families. These were great-grandmother, grandmothers, sons, daughters, nieces, nephews, like, you know, the velvet paintings and pissy elevators. And I played football in the hallway, like, where you had the apartments on one side and that cage on the other side. Like, you know, that that was life, you know? And these people don't get to make those decisions. They don't make. They don't get to make the decisions of when these buildings go up or who lives in there. They don't make make the decision of when they come down and what neighborhood they got placed in outside of that. Like I just wanted to, in a very personal, scream about that. And so the beat did some of the work. I did some of the work, and I and I was very pleased with the result. You very successfully encapsulated in a brief amount of time. The despair there, the pointlessness, the depth of the betrayal. Then not to cut this so hard with a joke, but like, as all rap songs do, right? It's just like, it's a very uh, misunderstood genre in that way where Mm. you can put a lot into a small amount of time. And it's like, people just, just don't listen properly and they don't know what these, what people are really saying. Yeah, I've been shocked in my career to learn how many people even with me, don't listen to the words. Yeah, I mean, I'm the exact opposite of that, so I just find yeah, those exactly. people insane. I'm just like, no, 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 he used this clause wrong. What are you talking about? Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I mean, incredibly successful album artistically, and uh, I'm really, really big on album endings. I really feel like the ending should be, the term I constantly use on my podcast is valedictory. You should finish the record properly and the current master of this is woods and elusive they both they always end their albums on these insane high notes with slightly different tempos and subject matters and you very successfully bring this story to a close with this song and honestly not to take anything away from you and your writing and delivery of this but that sound at the end of this album i cannot imagine the album ending any other way and it really brings the fucking cloud of dust out it's just it's it's so cool it's so well done thank you and and you know like i said i think the beat did a, a lot of work in toylight and and daddy kev mixing and mastering i mean they really brought that out in a way that feels very very real yeah absolutely Let's talk a little bit about the artwork. Um, when did that anthropomorphic building idea come into play? Did that start early? Did, did it come in after everything was done? Pretty early, like pretty soon after I realized that that was the direction the album was going to go in. I had this idea, like, I want these buildings to have arms like people, you know. And um, this brilliant artist McKay felt like I'd seen some of uh, seen some artwork he had done for some other albums, and I saw that uh, with the kind of long, skinny arm style, um, like long limbs, and but very clean art. And I thought he'd be perfect for it. I showed him a reference photo of one of the buildings, and uh, even, like on my Patreon last week, I put up some of the sketches that he did uh, when he was developing it because the photo was from a different angle. So he was originally trying to draw from that angle, but then he figured out the angle of the final product now, which is like this, oh, it's perfect shot. And you really get this sense of like, this kind of like unified force of buildings and the playground. And, and it's, it's really cool. It's really cool. I love that artwork. 
Um, like it was like one of those moments, and I, it's funny. I talked to Woods about this too because he doesn't like to put stuff on his album covers, and I and I had I was trying to get away with not putting any words, even my name, on this cover. I was advised not to not to do that. So we talked about this a little bit earlier, but um, people, the the writers of the world, the the critics, uh, were really feeling this record. It's a very well reviewed record, and we can talk about. Some of them, if you like, but I re- I more want to know, and I've been super into asking rappers this and producers this question lately, is do you care? Yeah, I have to. I don't care in the sense, or oh, I used to when I first started putting out music, like cared what each and every person thought. I've been able to get beyond that, but in general, like, you know, if you're an indie rap, critical acclaim is, a, is currency because that sort of word of mouth is really what we need for our products to... Um, do well, which is funny too, because in anime trauma and divorce, I realized that like, oh, I shouldn't. I ended up back in that. I care about what everybody thinks, but that's only because this was like it was so personal. Like I couldn't, I couldn't think about it the way that I'm supposed to think about a product, just because it was, it was, it was too, too personal, too vulnerable. But in general, I kind of keep a healthy balance. Like I don't, you know, like I do read the reviews, but I'm not reading all like the YouTube comments on every you know, video. That's a good or, line. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. R- read the content, not the comment. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And that, that tends to serve me pretty well, but yet yeah, answer your question. I do, I do care. I yeah, do care. I, I, do. I can tell. Uh, yeah. <laughs> not in a bad way. I mean, you're a thoughtful person and you, you know, you're a writer too. And I'm sure you like yeah, look for exactly. inconsistencies and like people who got things wrong. And I'm sure that, you know, sticks in your craw a little bit. Um, one of the notable things about this is that it made the Rolling Stone yearly top 50, uh, which Rolling Stone lists hot, hot button issue lately. But um, yeah, they're wilding over there. <laughs> <laughs> But that said, uh, this album, and I'm assuming is a pretty critical point in your career, landing on a, let's call it prestigious, for lack of a better term, list like that, does that have extra resonance than getting reviewed, getting the 3.5 star, which is like a hip-hop A-plus for Rolling Stone? (laughs) (laughs) Yo, you know what's really funny is that, like, I don't think I've ever gotten a pitchfork score higher than, like, 8.2, but the funny thing about that is that even ones where I have like a 7.8, they don't say anything bad about the album at all. They don't, they don't provide any context to why I cannot get another point. <laughs> like that's, that's always so hilarious. Yep. I was a Rolling Stone subscriber when I was a kid and an aspiring music critic. And to me, because I grew up in kind of like a classic rock house, that was what was cool. And it was cool that my parents even had a subscription to that and I could glean all that. And even then, I'm like, this... You wrote a five-star review and gave a three-star credit. Like, that doesn't make any sense to me. You're discounting the genre. You don't respect the genre, and that's what you're saying by doing this. And it's, it's frankly, it's bullshit. It's, if you don't give Hiding Places a 10, we're just, we're not having the same conversation. That's like, there's no... And largely, you're not having the same <laughs> conversation. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, well-reviewed in Spin, well-reviewed in Pitchfork, Rolling Stone all over it. Um, so, how'd it do? Did it make um, any money? Does it does it carry weight yeah, in your current it, career? It like, does. tell us, it does. help us it understand. Does. It, is, it, is, it is my most successful project in almost any way you can gauge, in almost any metric. Most plays, most video views as a project. Like, I have other songs that also performed well, but like as a collection of songs, uh, highly regarded, people genu- genuinely, generally enjoyed it. 
Yeah, when I when I line all my children up, this is the one that it did the best. Yeah, it's a it's an incredible record. It's um, very unique. Um, there are many hip hop concept albums. The uh, genre lends itself to crafting narrative in a way that's unique. I think, but this record stands alone as the only one of its kind that I can think of. And really appreciate the opportunity to uh, ask you some questions about it. I have always wondered what happened. Um, in the creation of it. And so just want to thank you for your time and for allowing me to be a part of your amazing uh, podcast empire that we're building here. Thank you and your crew for being a part of it. As you know, I've been a fan of what y'all do forever, and I appreciate you lending some of your interviewing talent and acumen to this uh, little vanity project thing I'm doing over here, man. I, I appreciate it. Don't